Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. What you are about to hear is one of seven keynote lessons from our 2022 Commune Wellness Summit, which featured more than 30 world-renowned teachers sharing their insights on a wide range of wellness topics. Now, my hope is that by the end of this extended lesson, you will have discovered at least one aspect of your life that you feel motivated to support with more love, more attention, and more balance. Now that insight will be different for each person or even each time that you listen. And this is one facet of why I called this company Commune, because exposure to a multitude of ideas, you could say a biodiversity of ideas, is how we develop individually and thus as a collective. Now, each of these teachers has a full-length course available on Commune. So if you are inspired to go deeper, I highly encourage you to sign up for a free 14-day trial of Commune membership at onecommune.com slash trial. You will find more than 100 courses on personal development, health, yoga, meditation, and social impact, as well as the full seven-day wellness summit. So without further delay, here's the fifth lesson from our 2022 Commune Wellness Summit titled, Your Role in Healing Society. Welcome back. Today we're learning about how our personal well-being is bound to the well-being of our global society. Thich Nhat Hanh said, peace in the world starts with peace in oneself. This concept is central to the work we're doing at Commune, where we continue to develop courses designed to empower our global community in making the world a better place. And so we put together four lessons that examine how the work you're doing on yourself has a ripple effect and how you might see your responsibility as a citizen as integral to your own personal well-being. Our first lesson comes to us from Justin Michael Williams, who went from growing up with gunshot holes outside of his bedroom window to sharing the stage with Deepak Chopra. He knows firsthand the power of healing to overcome adversity. Justin is a top 20 recording artist and a pioneering millennial voice for diversity and inclusion in wellness. In this lesson, he'll be talking about how that which doesn't heal repeats. This is true when it comes to our own mental and emotional health, as well as the health of society. It reminds me of that James Baldwin quote that goes, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. You have to feel it to heal it. You have to work on your own personal healing so that you can contribute to the collective in such a way that the same cycles stop repeating. Because without individual health, society will just perpetuate the same cycles of suffering on a larger scale. And so with that, I present to you, Justin Michael Williams. Welcome to our session on emotions. And the real lesson that you're gonna learn here in this session is how to unpack this phrase that you've heard me say a few times now, which is what doesn't heal repeats. And the reason this is so crucial is because if we want to create change in our lives and in the world, we have to work on the healing that we need to do ourselves and the healing that we have to do as a collective so that we don't keep repeating the same cycles. Now, I know it sounds very kind of like theoretical when we get into it at first, but let me just keep it real with you, okay? Have you ever been in a relationship, whether the relationship is romantic or not, got out of that relationship because you realized it wasn't right for you, and then got into a new relationship with a whole different person and soon realized you're in the same relationship with the same problems, same conversations, same cycles, but with a completely different person. 
And we've all been in this circumstance, whether it's romantic or not. And the reason for that is because if we haven't healed at our root, if we haven't changed within, then we can't show up for any relationship differently. And that applies to our relationship with people, for social justice and change, with our jobs, with our bodies, with our money, and with all of the zones of life. And I've said this over and over, especially as it relates to change and social justice and equality and the environment. We could use every hashtag. We could do everything in the book. We can elect new leaders. We can do everything that's being asked of us. But if we haven't changed within, if we haven't healed within, we'll just end up rebuilding the same thing all over again that looks slightly different. We'll end up oppressing another group. We'll end up rebuilding the system and going through these cycles again and again. And so what we're doing in this program with healing is learning to heal at the root so that we can stop repeating the cycles within our lives and within the world. And so that leads me really to the teaching today on emotions, which is what you don't feel, you can't heal. And I know it sounds like an Instagram meme or something like that, but it's the truth. What you don't feel, you can't heal. And, and I want to tell you this process that we're going to go through together in this lesson. And it starts with feel, which then leads us to reveal, which then leads us to heal. And so many of us, we like to skip the first one because it's hard sometimes to feel and to have the resilience and the capacity to feel the truth of what's happening in our lives. But we know what happens when we push things down for too long. All that ends up happening is it ends up seeping out into some area of your life where it doesn't belong. You end up snapping at your partner or yelling at your kids or getting sick or having something happening in your body. Because if we keep stuffing stuff down, that energy that you're not feeling has to come out somewhere. And so this takes the healing, really not just in the healing that we're doing with others in our lives, but the actual healing within, so that we don't have to stay in the same cycles and the same pain cycles within ourselves, our bodies, and our emotions. And one of the things that we know from the science of well-being is that in order to heal, we have to create and find meaning from all of the experiences that happen in our lives. So for example, as we're walking around and experiencing the world, what's happening is our body, mind, emotional system in relationship to everything that we're experiencing in the world, it organizes things in our brains and in our bodies and in our emotional field. And so every little experience you're having, even as you're listening to me right now, your mind is organizing this. And when things get organized, we feel a sense of ease and a sense of contentment because we know how to process them. But when something happens in our lives that we don't know how to organize, then what happens is we don't know how to find meaning from it. And if we don't have meaning, then it sends us off into those cycles where we're either pushing stuff down, we're spinning out of control, we're ruminating, we're thinking too much, we don't know what to do. But the root of all of this starts with feeling. Because if you go into the feeling, the feeling itself will reveal to you the meaning. And so what happens when we don't have the capacity to feel the full spectrum of our range of emotions is we shut down. We shut down the centers of our bodies and our brains and our emotional field that want to organize. And when that happens, we end up in a state of what I call dis-ease being out of alignment. And we wanna unlock that for you in this lesson today. So to keep it really simple, you can think about it like metabolizing food. When our body ingests something, if it's something that's good for us, if it's something that's not poisonous or that's gonna make us sick, then our body organizes it easily and we eliminate it and there's no stress, there's nothing to even think about, we just enjoy. But if we eat or ingest something that is harmful to us or that we're allergic to, I'm allergic to nuts, for example, like if I eat that, for me, with my genetic makeup, it's gonna create a complete chaos inside of my body, my emotional field, and my energetic field. Where somebody else could eat nuts or eat seafood or eat all these different things and they'll have no issues at all. And so we can think about how this works with our diet very easily, but it works the same as you metabolize the experiences you have in your life. And so the main point that I'm trying to make here is that you can't effectively get into healing conversations 
if you don't know how to own and name what you feel. Okay, so I have a funny story that I want to share with you about this. So when I was young, long time ago, I'm 32 right now, by the way, y'all. But anyway, at the time of filming this. So when I was like 20, I was going to my first therapy sessions and I had this boyfriend, right? And me and him were sitting in the therapy session and we were in an argument of some sort and we were in couples therapy and we're in there with the therapist and the therapist goes, well, Justin, what do you feel? And I was just like, well, I feel like he, and she goes, "Mm mm-mm. What do you feel? And I was like, well, I feel like he all, and she's like, no. And I said, well, I feel like, and I just kept saying, and she goes, no, what do you feel? And I was like, what do you mean? Now I feel like you're getting on my nerves. You know what I mean? Like, what did she, she's just looking at me like, you have to learn how to say what you feel. And one of the key ingredients here to having a healing conversation with anyone in your life is learning to name and own your feelings. Let me tell you a trick to getting this. Anytime you say, I feel like, you're on the wrong track, okay? That's pretty much the kick. Because if you say, I feel like, that's going to follow usually with a narrative. And I want you to pay attention to how often when you're trying to say what you feel, you actually say a narrative instead of a feeling. And so just think about it. When somebody asks, how are you? Oftentimes you're like, Uh, I'm good, I did this and I did that and I'm going here and I'm going there. All narrative. Or like I was talking about my ex in therapy, right? I'm like, I feel like he just isn't listening to me. Narrative. What is the emotional root that is happening inside of me, inside of you, with every experience that you're having? And I'm going to give you a skill that you can use to dive deeper into this now. All right, so what you're gonna see on the screen right now is something called the feelings wheel. And there's a lot of versions of these, but one of my favorites is by a woman named Gloria Wilcox. And the feelings wheel is a wheel of emotions. And at the center of the wheel, you will see the six primary emotions. And then as you expand out into the first circle, you're gonna see all these different emotions that correlate with those primary emotions. And when you go out a layer further, you see more words and more emotions that describe and help you describe what you're feeling. And this wheel is incredible because one of the things that I find is that if we don't have the language to say what we're feeling, then it's so hard for us to even identify what it is. This is why so many times we just use words like, well, I'm just mad or I'm just irritated, or I'm just in a bad mood for no reason, or I'm just feeling a little off today and I don't know why. When this happens, we give away our agency to claim and own our feelings. And claiming and owning your feelings is the first step. Really, it is. if you don't do this step, you can't have any healing conversation effectively. And so what we're gonna do now is I want you to start thinking about your emotional history. This is really important. Because depending on how you grew up, each of us have a different relationship with what we're comfortable expressing to others. So I'll give you an example. To keep it personal, you know, I grew up, I mentioned so many times in a home with gunshot holes outside of my house and a lot of trauma. And you know, the truth is my parents, given the circumstances that they had in their own trauma and going off the cycle of what doesn't heal repeats, my parents did a great job with what they had. But one of the true factors of my life was that I grew up in a home with domestic violence, with my stepdad being violent towards my mom and with my dad being violent towards my stepmom physically and emotionally. And so what happened for me growing up witnessing that level of toxic masculinity, that level of abuse, is it taught me to never want to express my anger. Because I was looking at those men and saying, I'm not going to be like that. I'm never going to be like that. And so I became somebody who had trouble expressing anger, having trouble standing up for what I believed in. I became somebody who was afraid of conflict. And so when I look at the wheel of emotions, I can see this whole area with anger was an area that was completely shut down for me. But anger is something that can actually be healthy and that can drive us to stand up for ourselves. And we'll dive into that a little bit later in another session. Let me give you a couple more examples so you can see how this 
works in your life. Because some people would have either gone through my story and had the same relationship with anger, and then you would see that some other people end up having an even worse relationship with anger, meaning they express it too much. So it either shows up as rigidity, meaning we close down, or chaos, meaning we just go out of control with our emotions. And this is usually how we relate to them. So the second example is this. You know, when we talk about what doesn't heal repeats, it doesn't just mean what's happening in your individual family unit. We can look back historically through our ancestry. And when you look at the history of African-Americans, for example, in the United States, the very real factual reality was African-Americans when they were slaves, which literally African-Americans were slaves in the United States for more time than African-Americans have been free in the United States, even up until now. And for all that time of slavery, African-Americans had to stand up on the chopping block basically and get sold away from their family, from their kids, from their partners, be stripped down naked and looked at with fingers prodding and putting into all kinds of places for little kids all the way up to adults getting sold off. And what happened back then was if any of the slaves cried or showed any sense of like guilt or remorse or sorrow, they would get whipped and lashed because they would get sold for less because they wouldn't be looked at as strong. And so we fast forward to today long after slavery has ended, and look at what the image of a typical black woman or a black man is. It's the strong black woman or the strong black man. And so this framing that went intergenerationally hundreds of years back is still repeating today. And you see in many communities of color, especially for black men and black women, there's a lot of trouble with expressing emotions and always wanting to be strong. And so you can see how this applies to your ancestry as well. And then finally, I wanna talk about one that I see so often with so many of my clients. And this is growing up in a home where there's not a lot of emotional connection with your family or parents. So growing up in a home, you know, I grew up in a home where my family always says, I love you, I love you, I love you. Like we say it every time we hang up the phone. And I know so many people who grow up in homes where they've never hear the word I love you from their parents. And you know, all of us have these different experiences. And so when you grow up in this environment where you don't hear I love you or you don't have that deep emotional connection. And so when you look at the wheel of emotions, you might look at the section on peacefulness or you might look at the section on joyful and see some emotions that you have trouble expressing with others. Or you might relate to it in a more chaotic way where you're always constantly trying to express love to everybody. It's just so overbearing for people. And so when we look at our emotional history, we then have the capacity to see, first of all, how to name and own our feelings, but how to understand how we show up for conversations and the area of this wheel that we need to unlock for ourselves. To step into healing conversations with ourselves and with others. We have to reclaim the power of our emotions. We here at Commune are on a mission to create a global wellness community by bringing to you a wide variety of teachings to help you heal. Now I know from personal experience that even though I'm here ready to embrace the inner work, even though I'm aware that I need to do some hard work to break intergenerational patterns and create new healthier habits, there's still a part of me that sometimes resists feeling the really difficult emotions. It's not easy to be with the most painful, messy, agonizing parts of myself or to face the most egregious sins of our collective history. But it's necessary in order to heal, both personally and as a society. That's why we offer a wide variety of practices that help you actually drop into the body and feel what so often is too painful to confront. Breathwork, yoga, affirmations, meditations, these are all tools you'll find if you take some time to explore commune membership. You'll also find Justin's full course, Healing Conversations, which helps you do the inner work so your actions in the world 
helps to heal rather than divide. This includes having important, difficult conversations with yourself and with others in order to confidently call forward rather than simply calling out with blame and with shame. You'll come away from this course with a new vision for your life and the world, along with healthy ways to set and enforce boundaries, speak up for yourself in any situation, and templates you can use to support honest and healing conversations. Along those lines, this next lesson is from Sharon Salzberg, who is a renowned teacher of Buddhist meditation practices with an emphasis on vipassana, or insight, and metta, or loving kindness. In 1974, she co-founded the Insight Meditation Society in Barr, Massachusetts with Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein and has been leading meditation retreats around the world for over three decades. In this lesson, Sharon explores three different elements of action, intention, execution, and letting go. I present to you, Sharon Salzberg. We do this inner work, we cultivate greater mindfulness and insight and love and compassion because it changes how we live. We take action in a different way. And the different elements of action I want to talk about. The first is the intention or the motivation that underlies what we do. You know, I may hand somebody something and it could be coming from a lot of different places within me. Maybe I'm giving you this object because I like you and I want you to have it. Or maybe I see, oh, you know, you have that really nifty looking water bottle. Maybe if I give you this, you'll give me that. Or maybe I don't like you actually and I think it, it's somehow going to ruin your day, even though I give it to you with like the same smile, right? It's the same action. All anybody sees is my hand moving down, lifting up an object and moving it forward. But it's coming from a very, very different place inside. And so the intention or the motivation is considered actually a very powerful part of the action. This is more an Eastern sensibility than a Western sensibility. Here in the West, we tend to think of, well, the road to hell is paved with good intentions or what do you mean you had a good intention? You totally messed up. But in psychological systems in Asia, it's considered very important because it's actually what differentiates one action from what looks completely identical on the surface, but is coming from a very different place. There's an energy to that intention and it really defines, in a way, what the action is about. You know, any act of generosity, as an example, could come from that place of inner abundance. It could come from a sense that we don't ourselves deserve to have anything. So we're giving. It's almost a kind of martyrdom. It's a very different action. And it's said that only we can know our motive. We might be kind of sensitive and, you know, feel like we can guess the motive of somebody else, but really only we can know our own motivation. And we use mindfulness to become aware. Again, it's very, very important that we become aware without so much judgment and um, you know, kind of condemnation. We often find sort of mixed motives. And then we see, okay, can I come from a different place or the best place within me? in saying this or doing this. Sometimes, again, when I'm working with a company or an organization, somebody at work in some way, I suggest, well, before a major meeting or before a big phone conversation, see if you can ask yourself, what do I really want to see come out of this? Do I want to be seen as right? Do I want a resolution? Do I want a sense of joining together? Do I want to grind them into dust? Like, what do I want? Because asking that question is one of the doorways to having some knowledge of our motivation. 
It's also said that if we cultivate the force of loving kindness, say through that meditation practice, as one way, that our field of motivation will transform. If we have largely, for example, been coming from a place of fear in what we do, in what we say, in what we hold back from doing or saying, and we strengthen loving kindness, we will find that we are more and more coming from a place of connection, of caring. And one of the things I love about the loving kindness practice is that it's not like giving yourself a lecture. You know, it's not like you don't really want to listen to this person and you find them kind of boring, but you just did this whole course in loving kindness. So you feel like I better act like I better show off. It's not like that. Something shifts inside of us. So we're actually coming from a different place in what we do, how we act, how we live. The second aspect of an action is the skillful or unskillful execution of it. And that means mindfulness in a bigger context. It means being sensitive to where we are and what seems right and appropriate in one situation may not seem right or appropriate in another situation. It takes discernment, learning from our mistakes, learning from feedback, learning skills. I've often said that it's very important to separate the change in motivation from the skillfulness of the action, because when we morph them together, then that's the place where people get kind of squeamish about getting more loving. They say, were I to get more loving, I could only say yes. I could only give them more money. I could only let them move back in. I could only be kind of meek and sweet and whatever. But it's really not so. We act from the best motive that we can with as much skillfulness as we can, which means the context, the relationship, the moment in time is very important. I call it our best guess of the best way to act. And certainly we make mistakes for sure, but it's a constant learning process. It's important to understand the distinction between these two. It's also important to learn skills of expression, of communication. In difficult times, for example, it's very common to hold back because you feel like whatever I can do could never be enough. It's so small. It's so meager. It's so nothing. Is that really true? So many times what we do is just like planting a seed. We may not get instant gratification, but it's essential that we plant the seed. So we see what's motivating us. We learn to come from a better motivation. And we learn skills of action to do the good that's in front of us, maybe. To do the best we can. To learn skills of communication. Anybody who say, supervises somebody at work, knows it's not that skillful to say you're an idiot. You know, it's much more skillful to be specific, to say, well, you turned in the memo six weeks late, three people couldn't go on vacation. Actions are consequential because you've at least given someone the information they could use if they seek to change. And then the third aspect of the action is is really a kind of letting go. It's realizing the immediate result may not be perfectly satisfying. It doesn't mean nothing happened. That our sense of integrity can't land solely on, you know, did everybody praise my book? Maybe not. But what was your intention in writing it? And what level of skill could you bring forth? And so doesn't mean we disdain what others say, but we understand what's within our realm to affect and where we need to kind of let go and understand, well, did I or did I not do the best I could in this circumstance? And so um, there's something very enlivening 
and very empowering in kind of reclaiming our sense of integrity into these arenas where we can continually grow and change. I love the gentleness of Sharon's approach, the radical loving kindness she suggests we show ourselves as we examine our own motivations and intentions. It's through this type of honest self-inquiry that will evolve into a community of people who do no harm. And I also love her message about letting go of the outcome. It can be frustrating to put a lot of care into taking action and not know if we're having the impact we intended. But all we can do is our best to do what's right and good and then let the outcome be what it is. If we get another chance to take action, we do so with the wisdom that we've gained from taking the action previously. Now, if you'd like to hear more from Sharon, she has a seven-day course in Commune membership called Compassionate Resilience. In this course, each lesson is paired with a guided meditation so you can first absorb her sage advice on topics such as presence, balance, wisdom, and love, and then embody them in a meditation. In this next lesson, writer and philosopher Charles Eisenstein will be talking about the importance of your political engagement. He posits that at one point, you bounded bright-eyed into the political realm with tremendous hope around what could be accomplished. And then over time, those great expectations were for the most part undermined. Cynicism is kind of a defense mechanism against that repeated betrayal. But according to Charles, it's time to trust that unreasonable expectation again, because it never actually dies. He'll talk about how we can create the conditions for politics based on interdependency, peace, love, and interbeing. And as those conditions take root, our culture of separation, exploitation, domination, and war will crumble. Here's Charles Eisenstein. Hi, everybody. Happy to be back with you again. Today, I'd like to, because it is a political season, at least in my country, at the time of this recording, I'd like to talk about elections. I have a friend who's running for office. She reached out to me for advice. And I told her the most important thing to remember, given your recognition of what we're actually serving here, which is so much deeper than any election, I said, the important thing to keep in mind that your goal in running for office is not actually to win the election. If you believed that the problems of this earth could be, could be solved if only our candidate, our party, got into office, then you would be justified in doing whatever it took to win that fight. Whatever negative campaigning, whatever devious tactics, those would be justified if you really believed that your victory would be the salvation of this planet. But we don't really believe that, do we? Because we recognize as I've been talking about, that the real revolution is on a much deeper level. We realize and we witness the gridlock in the current political system where each successive party, each successive candidate, um, each new office holder helplessly carries out pretty much the same policies with maybe a little bit of wiggle room as their predecessor did. We see a situation where here's left and here's right and they're pulling on a tug of war and sometimes the mark in the center moves a little bit this way and there's some kind of uh, gun reform, some incremental gun reform and then it pulls a little bit that way and that's undone and it goes back and forth inside this narrow range when what really needs to happen is maybe out here or maybe not even on this one-dimensional axis at all. Maybe it's out here or up there, what really needs to happen is so far outside anything that's going to happen within the given political process. So recognizing that we, even if, and I'm not saying don't run for office, what I'm, or, and I'm not saying don't participate in electoral politics, and I'm not saying don't vote, but I'm saying that as you do so, whether as a voter, an activist, or as a candidate, remember 
that you are serving something much more important than victory. So what I told my friend is I said, anytime you're making a speech, make sure that you are transmitting peace. If you are criticizing your opponent, say things like, I understand the difficulty of my opponent's situation. Here he is facing the pressures from the coal lobby, facing pressures from the uh, entrenched bureaucracy, facing all of these pressures. And it's really hard for him to do the right thing. In a, in a way, you're refusing to play into the um, find an enemy uh, war mentality that governs politics as we know it. And I said, maybe you won't win by doing this. Maybe your other advisors will tell you that your only chance to win is to go negative. And they'll have statistics proving and, and historical examples proving that only by going negative do you have any chance against this much better financed, much higher name recognition opponent. But if you win that way, you will actually have lost. You will have contributed to the status quo. And here's the paradox, though. You're probably not going to win even if you play by their rules. If you play by a different set of rules, you actually have a chance. By letting go of victory in the election as your ultimate goal, you might actually have a better chance of winning victory in the election. Why? Because the electorate is sick of this. They're hungry for somebody who is representing a new story. They sense that if you embody a story of peace in the election, if you refuse to sink to the current level of discourse, if you refuse to insult people's intelligence by feeding them focus group engineered sound bites in politics, universal culture of lying and inauthenticity and pretending that you have all the answers and pretending that you have a plan and you're just there as a human being and you say, yeah, actually about this issue, I don't know what to do. Healthcare, I don't know what to do about healthcare. It's really complicated. Gun control, I can see this side, I can see that side. I don't know what to do about that either. Unless you do have a strong opinion, you do know what to do, then maybe say that and say, yeah, this is what I think and I can see the other side. So to come at it from a non-polarizing position, maybe you won't win, but maybe you will because you're appealing to that which in, within all of us that, that also is ready for a new story and ready to see that new story played out in politics. And when we see somebody who is stepping into a new story in the way that they conduct themselves politically, we think, hmm, maybe they will not be the captive of entrenched ways of seeing the world and entrenched patterns of solving problems that are actually part of the problem. Maybe they'll actually do something new. Maybe they'll bring things onto the table that everybody supports, but that for some reason just aren't on the table. We have all kinds of things in, in my country that the majority of the population would support that are considered political, political suicide to, to propose them as a politician. Like only fringe candidates, maybe Bernie Sanders, uh, will support universal health care um, or Medicare for all, as it's sometimes phrased. It's considered like way too left, like commentators and talking heads will say, well, that is way to the left of the electorate. Anyone who proposes that is going to be considered too radical or too liberal or something like that. Meanwhile, polls show that something like two-thirds of Americans support that, yet it's considered too radical. So what's going on here? And I could name other issues that, that are just common sense, that of course everybody would, would want this, but it's considered impossible in the current game of politics. So we're looking for somebody who's willing to violate convention, willing to mention the unmentionable and actually be an agent of real change. So that's what I, what I told my friend. Um, 
by letting go of conventional wisdom about how to win an election, you might actually win the election. Now, of course, most people listening to this are not running for office, but you can bring the same mentality to your political engagement, whether it's on social media or at protest events or any kind of political event or even conversations in your family, to let go of, if only we could win this election, that's the most important thing because, and there's all kinds of reasons why it's the most important thing because, you know, Supreme Court appointments or because um, the other party is going to do this, that, and the other terrible thing and there's children in detention camps and the prison industrial complex. And, and I mean, these are not invalid reasons, but I want to actually speak to your cynicism. Usually, I'm very wary of cynicism. Cynicism being kind of a, an apathy, kind of a, a surrender to the weary belief that nothing's ever going to change. Cynicism is also a defense against idealism. It's a defense against that unreasonable hope that keeps stirring within us that things really could be better. Because, yeah, if you believe in that, we were born with that, born with this expectation of a magnificent, alive, um, authentic, enchanted life, born into this tremendous curiosity about the world and this great expectation of what life could be. And that great expectation was in many ways betrayed. Even if you grew up in a very privileged environment, that expectation was betrayed. Cynicism is a kind of a defense mechanism against a repeated betrayal. I'm not even going to believe it's possible anymore. I'm going to settle for what is. So usually I'm, I'm, I like to uh, encourage people to dare let go of that cynicism. Believe again. Trust the unreasonable expectation because it never actually dies. But cynicism has a valid function too which is to cast aside anything that we know isn't working. To cast aside the tired ways of engaging problems, the holding patterns of relationship, political relationship. It's the feeling, yeah, we're done with that. We don't believe in that anymore. We don't believe in that anymore. In my lifetime, I've seen a tremendous rising tide of kind of a healthy cynicism. And it has an unhealthy aspect too. The healthy cynicism is, is that we don't really believe in our process anymore. It's not that the process has stopped working because we don't believe in it, as some in the political class would think. It's the opposite. It's the reverse. It's that we don't believe in it anymore because it has stopped working, because it has become so deeply dysfunctional, and because the dysfunction that's always been there has become more visible to us. So we don't really have faith in it anymore. We don't revere it anymore, the, the current political framework that we live in. Even going down to that sacred constitution, like why do we hold on to that? some document that was written 200, 250 years ago. Why is that holy? So that's the, 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 then comes the unhealthy dimension of cynicism, which is a resistance to attempt any kind of real change, to plunge into the unknown, because it's not gonna work. We've been there. That's not what's happened. It's that we've never plunged into the unknown. We've been promised it. We've been promised hope and change again and again, We've been promised, I mean, going back to Reagan, Morning in America, we've been promised this, this golden land just over the horizon. From Morning in America to Obama, hope and change, to Trump, make America great again. Left and right, liberal and conservative, Democrat and Republican have all promised the same thing. So of course, we are cynical when the general direction of society has been one of gradual decay. That is the healthy cynicism. But to say that things will never change then when we haven't really even tried, that's not a warranted extension. So I want to speak to that idealism, the hope that never dies, and the courage to step into the 
into the unknown politically. And sure, there is a policy level of the unknown, big changes. You know, like we're not talking about uh, maybe some government aid to distressed mortgage holders or something like that. Like what about a general debt cancellation? You know, we're not talking about some incremental reforms to health insurance. We're talking about free health care for all. Things like that, things on that level. Um, not talking about uh, repairing relations with our strategic allies um, so that we're better able to resist America's adversaries, but to question the whole idea of adversaries and why have adversaries been erected in the world? Are they really adversaries? Are we still in that era of one nation against another nation, in the era of competition, that, which is part of the story of separation, remember? Separate selves in a world of other competing for their, for their self-interest to survive and reproduce. That paradigm then gets applied onto nation states. Does it have to be that way? Can we mimic an ecology in the ecology of nations? These are the kinds of things that we need to start talking about and bringing into policy. But I have not seen them really on the agenda. Although sometimes, you know, a politician will give lip service or something like that. And I think it's actually coming from the heart. But it comes out as lip service because the institutions are so frozen and the political habits are so entrenched that they can't really act on those things. But we can start to believe them and to serve them and to create the ground conditions for them to become no longer unmentionable and no longer inconceivable, but to become practical, maybe even to become obvious. What are those ground conditions? The psychic climate, the political climate. This comprises all of the conversations that are happening one-on-one, -on, -one, on social media, through the, the the blogs and the podcasts, like the totality of the conversations that are happening. If you add the principles and spirit of interbeing into these conversations, you are changing the climate. And as that climate changes, the policies of separation, of exploitation, of domination, of war, they no longer have a home. We push those out and we create the conditions for policies based on a story of interconnection, interdependency, peace, love, interbeing. That is the secret goal. And maybe not so secret anymore, but this can be what we're really serving. Yeah, so maybe you will vote for somebody. Maybe you will campaign for somebody. The question is, how do you do that? How do you campaign for them? And my suggestion then, is to campaign from this new story of interbeing that wants to be born on this earth. Thank you. I love Charles's audacious declaration that we can create a new paradigm that isn't based on competition. The audacious hope that we can build a new society rooted in truth that only when everyone is well will we all be well. And I resonate with this idea that the reason unhealthy cynicism has taken over is because so many of us have been betrayed by a toxic system. So many of us have been hurt by how a poorly regulated capitalist system like ours propagates isolation, poor self-worth, and fear. And we know that hurt people hurt people. That's why it's so important that we heal, because healed people heal people. If you want to learn more from Charles, you can check out his full 10-day course, Political Hope, where he goes deep into all the ways we are moving away from a story of separation to a new yet ancient story of reunion and interdependency. He teaches about how all big things are the culmination of small things, and that once people understand this, they can enact change in themselves, in their lives, in their families, in their communities, and in greater society. And with that, we conclude our lesson on your role in healing society. 
What you choose to say and do impacts others. And if more of us choose to do and say things that are healing for all people, the logic goes that we'll have a better world where our children and generations to come will thrive. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Thank you for listening to the fifth lesson from our seven-day Commune Wellness Summit titled Your Role in Healing Society. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you are a regular listener, you have a sense for how much effort we put into this show's creation, and we really do our best to keep ads to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders, as well as the full-length Wellness Summit. The membership version of this summit includes yoga, meditation, and breathwork classes paired with each daily lesson. So you can actually embody what you are learning. For 14 days of free Commune membership, just visit onecommune.com trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime with suggestions and criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, and not leastly, I would like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Ruby Foster, Emma Frett, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the Commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>